Tanya Lerman is a uh, professor at Stanford University and the author of the book, When God Talks Back. Uh, This is a fascinating and a bit jarring of a book where Lerman went undercover within the walls of a certain evangelical church. And she took four years to walk in the shoes of Jesus-following, worldview people, Christian community. She, not as a believer, attended prayer meetings, sat in church gatherings, entered homes of confessing, professing Christians, and and so on. Now, the book has some eye-opening observations, uh, some which are good and some which are very biased and fractured opinions. Nonetheless, I bring it up because the crux of this book that she wrote, the crux of this book and what Lerman, the author, could not get around was this idea of a relationship with God. She could not understand what it would mean for a person to have a relationship with God. Lerman, fascinated by the fact, was she would simply identify as the American Westland experience of people connecting and relating to God who apparently loves them unconditionally. And this book is page after page of her explaining her explaining how people talk with and be with and do life with Jesus. Now granted, the people she was around told her that she should date Jesus and they even told her that she should they should, you know, put out a cup of coffee for Jesus in the morning. So that's a bit odd. I'm not encouraging anybody to do that, but she found it unnerving and at the same time inspiring. Now hear me out, because I do not necessarily uh, disagree. There is something outrageous and wild and a bit insane about man, us, having a relationship with God. See, Lerman dug up, in my opinion, the crux and the point and the peak of the entire Bible. I mean, Christians here tonight, think about it. Can't all of Christianity, the gospel, the Bible, the mission of God, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, can all of that be boiled down to the soul of humanity and its relationship with God? The very relationship was, which is unlike any other relationship any one of us could possibly encounter. Now, I know we all have relationships of very, very different kinds. I mean, every single one of us in this room have numerous relationships, and that doesn't even necessarily mean uh, they're good ones. I have a relationship with my father. It just happens to be a poor one. But we each are drowning, drowning in relationships, professional relationships, romantic relationship. I hope that one's not plural. Plural. (laughs) Romantic relationship. We have friendly relationships. We have family relationships. All the way to probably pet relationships. Like, this cat knows my soul. Like, we all, Jenny, that was for you. Like, everybody, like, this cat, this dog, this turtle. I'm assuming some of us even have a relationship in here with our car. Is it safe to assume that 90% of you have named your car? Raise your hand if you've named your car. And the people who aren't raising your hand, you're a liar. And every time something happens with your car, you're just like, oh, hey, 
Black Beauty got a rumble in your tumble? Like everybody talks to their car, has a relationship. I was thinking about my relationship with non-humans. And I have to say, me personally, I have this horrible love affair with burritos. As you can see, I love burritos. I just, wanted, I just want to take a moment and thank God for burritos. It's seriously like my heart is wrapped in a tortilla. I love them. I just want to write a book about a theology of burritos. We can all go home now. I just love burritos. RJ, you do too, bro. Don't deny it. So just as God the Father, just as God the Father is in eternal relationship with with the Son and the Holy Spirit, man and woman, you and me as well, were created for relationships, community, and to connect with those that we will encounter within our life. And as great and as life-giving some of those relationships will be that we will encounter, none of them hold a candle to relationship with Jesus Christ. See, where we have countless relationships from our car to our boss, many of them life-altering, sure, yes, but only a relationship with Jesus transforms the now and the eternal. Your cat does not transform the eternal. So with that, we ask the elementary question of why? What does it mean to be with Jesus, to relate to Jesus? How does one relate to Jesus? How does Jesus relate to us? And especially for our text today, especially what transformation comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but in reading, if you read the Bible reading plan, or even as we just read it now, but as I read these verses, I was struck by the lightning bolt of a word in verse 13. Read it with me again, the latter half. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I know you saw it. And they recognized that they had been with, with, with Jesus. Get this. This is, this is so insane to me. Somehow, their connection and relationship with Jesus was so recognizable that it gives these officials, these educated brilliant, influential leaders, it gives them pause of some sort. This transformative witness that even those who don't follow Jesus can't help but acknowledge. Those here tonight who perhaps don't believe in Jesus, have you experienced this as well? When you're with those who do believe that you come across within your life, you just find yourself asking the question, like, what's different about you? You find yourself asking the question, what's going on? For the officials, as plain as day, these common men are saying and doing very, very, very uncommon things. Now, if this is your first time here, if you haven't been gone for a while, you may be lost within the narrative. See, well, see, there's, I want us to understand that our scripture shows us right now, excuse me, that our scripture shows us right now that we're in the middle of a trial. We're in the middle of a trial. A couple of our friends, Peter and John, followers and apostles of Jesus Christ, have been read their rights. They've been arrested and been held in prison overnight. All because they healed a 40-year-old man. Our doctor of an author, Luke, throws that uppercut that he's 40 years old to underscore the magnitude of the miracle and highlight the dilemma that the Jewish officials are in. 
basically there's no denying what happened, that Peter and John, in the name of Jesus, healed this man who is 40 and has not walked since birth. See, what has happened, he's done it by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. What's beautiful, this healing was done publicly in front of the temple, and Peter, as this open-air preacher, talks to the crowd, told the crowd around the temple that this was only possible because of Jesus. Peter calling all who doubted that they should repent and turn to Jesus. And that salvation alone is found in the risen Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. These broken records obviously are a problem for the very authorities and leaders who went to great lengths to end Jesus. Now, can you just imagine for a moment their, their faces as they are hearing countless words in the name of Jesus that he is alive. Just imagine their faces. Probably most of you remember Voldemort's expression. Spoiler alert, but everybody's read it or seen it. Do you remember when Voldemort sees Harry Potter rise from death? The very one he just performed the killing curse on? I ain't going to say it. But you remember like he performed the killing curse on him? His expression, his, his nose-missing face, the others who wanted Harry dead, their face. My childlike brain likes to imagine the same uncomfortable, awkward shock that is in the deathly house in the same, in the same event with the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin there that are before Peter and John. See, no matter what they did or what they can do, they cannot escape Jesus. And Peter, I love it, reminds them of that very clearly. I'm going to backtrack. Look at verse 10. This is from last week, but it's important for today. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. And it's these various words, this reminder, the sermon that Peter is preaching, which is like an arrow to the heart of these officials. And they recognize this witness. Look at verse 13 again. And they recognize that they had been with Jesus. Okay, so I want us to be able to basically ask, what of it? We keep saying the W word, what of it? What of this witness? First, I want us to understand that there is a chasm of difference in doing things for God or in doing things for Jesus or being in the presence of God or just knowing about Jesus. But the grand difference from that to being with Jesus. See, like observing someone's art at an art gallery or reading a book from an author or even attending a concert, I may be in their presence or seeing their handiwork, or enjoying their handiwork, and still have never once been with them. To be with Jesus is this, to, to connect, to follow, to love, to sacrifice for, to be discipled in, and so on. And for Peter and John, they had been with Jesus in a way we will never experience. They were discipled by Jesus and taught by Jesus. They broke bread with Jesus. They cracked jokes with Jesus. 
They were, je- they were there with Jesus when he wept, as he was arrested or as he was holding children or embracing lepers. Peter and John had a severe, genuine relationship withness. These men were, were little, you know, these men were Jesus. They were, they were Jesus men. They were little Christians, little Christ. And it was obvious to anyone around, and especially those in the court, who tried to stomp Jesus out. Now, as I read and prepped this week, I was pretty rocked by a simple thought that I needed to ask myself and, and examine in myself and in my life, and hopefully some Christians here can relate, but I needed to think about it, and I needed to think about when was the last time that I was recognized as being with Jesus, as I'm eating my burrito, to something you've been with Jesus When was the last time I was recognized being with Jesus, with my family, with my friends, my neighbors, my enemies? And I extend that very same question to you, collective church. Have you been acknowledged this week or this month or this year as being with Jesus? There's no other explanation for what they're doing. They've been with Jesus. To me, it's a crazy thought, right? Because... I was thinking, we know when we're around people who do CrossFit because they live and breathe it. We know when we're around people who are vegans because they live, breathe it, eat it, and spread it and tell it. We know when we're around people who attend USC or UCLA because they're wearing it or they're just talking about it or it's on their license plate or on the color of their shoes. (laughs) You know when you're around people who are Star Wars fans or Prius owners or PTA members or even East Siders. Any East Siders here tonight? We love you. All right, Phil, love you, buddy. We know it. Because the level, why? Because the level of importance of those things and their life leaks out. Because priorities have been shifted. Their identifiable markers of life have shifted because they believe, it's, they believe it so much that they become evangelists for it because they have been so touched and transformed by it. More on that in a minute. So for our time today, Peter and John exhibit two transformational points that I want to talk about. Two archetypes. That being this transcendent archetypal attributes that apply to all race and gender and generations. These archetypes being the proofs of, proofs of being with Jesus. One of them is in verse 13. Look at it. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... So I'd say the first one is boldness. Now, I don't know if that strikes any of you as odd. That being one of the attributes of being with Jesus is boldness. Why boldness? Why boldness? Why boldness is a sign of somebody who's been changed by Jesus? Shouldn't it be love or shouldn't it be generosity or shouldn't it be, you know, to heal or to exercise demons? Well, yeah, sure, Uh, But boldness is a different kind of fruit of a relationship with Christ, especially in the face of fear. And we see Peter and John are in a very fearful situation. But what they show us is boldness isn't necessarily an emotion. It's not fleeting. It's a decision. Boldness is a willingness. It's a decision in the face of opposition to rise for another. I like how easy Pastor Kevin DeYoung makes it. He goes, to be bold is to be clear, 
in the face of fear. See, boldness, I believe, has to be one of the most pure signs of a genuine relationship, of genuine witness. You know you are dear to someone when either you stand for them or they stand for you. I was thinking my siblings and I knew this very, very well when at times there was abuse in our home and within the walls of our home and to experience the boldness of somebody else stand up between you and harm. And there's nothing like it. Or to experience the opposite of that when nobody stands up between you and harm and you crave that you had the type of relationship where somebody was bold enough to do that. You know you mean something or some you know you mean something to another if they if they boldly go to bat for you or, or fight for you or stand for you. We see Peter and John with brave hearts and bold words here doing just that for Jesus. For this lame man. And think about it, isn't that exactly think about this, isn't that exactly what gospel boldness does? Isn't that what Christian boldness does? Isn't that what a relationship with Jesus does? The gospel of Jesus Christ unveils that there are more important things in my life than just my life. And those here who don't follow Jesus, those who aren't with Jesus, know that about the Christian faith. It's not only a faith that that is about the now and the everlasting, but also gives purpose and strength for us to face the now with healing from yesterday and hope for tomorrow. See, the good news of Jesus Christ beckons all of us to count the cost of what it'll mean to be with him. Jesus told everybody, you slow down and you count the cost of what it means to follow me and then to live in that cost. There's an English author and minister from back in the day. He shows us how we must live. He says, a minister... And I would say that's all of us as embedded missionaries and as a priesthood of saints. He goes, a minister without boldness is like a smooth file, a knife without an edge, a sentinel that is afraid to to let off his gun. See, Christians are to live sharply, to live a life where we make a difference, to live a life of bravery and courage and boldness. Now, I want to clean this up a bit because uh, I don't want anybody just to think that boldness means you just walk in a room and start throwing fists around. I, don't, I want us to clean this up. This type of boldness we see in Pete and Johnny is to express what they've seen. They're expressing what they've seen as a witness and what they've heard because it's something so much more. It's something so much more than just going in and throwing fists or just being strong. We see here it's something so much more. And just as Kevin DeYoung said regarding these apostles... They are clear. They are clear in the face of fear. The Spirit of God has given them clarity, which melts the brains of the leaders. It's as if, get this, it's as if if Peter and John are performing surgery. It's so purposeful, it's so skillful, and it's sharp, and their very words are as the scalpel of sorts. But to take it a step further, the Sadducees, the officials, the leaders there, the Sanhedrin there in the court, to them, this just can't be happening. It's not the fact that surgery is in session. It's who is performing the surgery. To them, it's as if children are doing the operating. It's as if you hand my kid to them like a scalpel. I mean, they can't understand it at all. 
You've probably all seen in the news Dr. Love. Anybody been following Dr. Love and his story? One of you? Awesome. This will be great. (laughs) Dr. Love, the 18-year-old who was out there Doogie Howsering it up. Remember? He's been pretending to be a doctor. And everyone, rightly so, is just appalled. The court here with Peter and John feel the same way as so many feel with Dr. Love. Essentially, who in the world are you? What are your credentials? Uh, What is your experience? They're so bothered by it because because of who these men are. They're so bothered by it because of who these men are. And get this, listen to this collective church. Allow this to be an adrenaline shot of inspiration. Look at verse 13 again. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were what? Astonished. Again, they're astonished because of who's speaking. Who are you again? What are your credentials? What is your experience? How are you doing what you're doing, you little uneducated men? If I could be vulnerable with this church, which I love so, so deeply, um, one of my biggest thorns in my side and one of my biggest embarrassments is the lack of education that I have. And I think about it all the time. I find myself more often than not hating the way my brain and my mind works. Why I just can't do certain things. So I compare myself a lot, compare myself to men in this room who are much smarter than I am, and I fall into fear a lot, all because I can't do short division, I'm a slow reader, and I retain barely anything I read. Somehow I can remember every 90 Saturday morning cartoon, but I can't remember a book about Jesus. But more than just simple education, what crushes me, church, is my lack of robust theology. And I'm just confessing to you, I mean, it is a gray cloud which hangs over my head that I am every day learning how to pray about, release to Jesus and allow the Spirit of God to work in me. But I say all those types of things because these verses and these words about the, these apostles of Jesus Christ, they shake and they rattle and they roll down my spine. Because what these verses do is remind me, and I hope remind everybody here in this room, of God. I hope it reminds us of God that our God can do the same amount of work with a GED that he can do with a PhD. That our God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That our God would much rather use a willing heart than a capable mind. That our God is a God of power. That our God is a God not of bias, credentials, resume, or reputation, but a God who includes and invites any and all to participate in his kingdom work. No one here has gone too far or is too incompetent or too untrained or too uneducated to be used for great and powerful things done in the name of Jesus. My hope for this church and my own heart that we would taste and see how good it is to be with Jesus and watch him unleash. Watch him unleash things that you, that I have never thought possible within our lives. And all, I say that all if we let him, if we let him, The Bible is filled, 
filled with God, not only using brilliant men and women, but also the untrained and the uneducated. Peter and John are those people. They didn't attend Rabbi High. You know, they, don't, they didn't get their MDiv. But hear me, though. Now, they weren't illiterate. They were just unschooled. Daryl Bach, one commentator, says it so simply that it's worth quoting in my opinion. He just says, this lack of educational and theological background leaves the leaders wondering about the apostles' ability to address the issue so effectively. But then the leaders also realize that these men have been with Jesus. What I want us to take away from this entire thing, hear me out, and to find great comfort and charge in it, is it's okay to be common. Which I know for us as Angelinos, it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> because common here is what gets steamrolled over. We live in a city where if you're not unique or great, then you might as well be gone. But in the kingdom of God, it is a beautiful thing to be common. Because there, these beautiful situations, like the ones we're reading about right now, it puts God, what happens with common men and women, it puts God and his wonderful power on display, and the world is stunned. As God uses common men and women. Christians, are you bold? Or are you embarrassed? Do you believe God can and wants to use you in your context? Christians, are you courageous or are you ashamed? To ask some very pointed but hard questions, do you hide the fact that you attend church or attend a church gathering? Do your coworkers know that you believe that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords? Do your neighbors know that you pray? Do your friends know that you believe in every authoritative word of the Bible? Do those around you know that you follow Jesus no matter the cost? A repeated phrase from God in the Bible that you're holding goes like this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, our relationship with Jesus is not built upon us being with Jesus but the fact that God came to be with us. See, God came in the flesh to be with you and with you and you and you and me. That's what this title, that's what his title of Emmanuel means, right? God with us. And this was God's plan to save the world. If you remember from earlier, if the soul of the Bible and the soul of the gospel is about the soul of man and its relationship with God, and if the Bible tells us that that relationship has been shattered, God's redemptive solution was to be with us. And to see if the world would then make an authentic, genuine, costly decision to then be with him. Are there people here who tonight have not made a decision to follow Jesus or to be with Jesus? Are there people here teeter-tottering about whether or not to be with Jesus, to make him Lord of our life? Let me say this. You will never regret the decision in making Jesus Christ Lord of your life. You will never regret it once. 
Friends, our boldness and our courage comes not just by connecting and relating to Jesus, but in the gospel which tells us that Jesus came to connect and be and relate to us, to walk with us, to carry us, to heal us, to embrace us, which is unbelievably scandalous. See, authors like Taylor, or excuse me, Tanya Lerman just can't grasp the wonderful insanity that God can have a relationship with us. But we know it's possible in Jesus. We are to be bold publicly and privately to identify with Jesus because Jesus on a cross identified with you. Hear these words from Jesus himself. And he goes, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, that being Jesus, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Now what I don't want for this church is for this boldness, this witness or this commission to be a burden. And please don't feel shame. I struggle with it all the time. I want us to find our boldness not as a burden, but as an explosion, as an overflow of joy about what has been done for you and who came to be with you. See, the bravest men and women I've known have seen or have encountered and they've made this lasting impact are those who don't feel burdened but blessed. And they're filled to the top with grace and truth and they just can't help but watch it spill over into their streets and into the context of their lives. And again, no wonder, right? I mean, if this is in our lives and it's truly good news, we spread it. Like a new fad diet, we tell everybody. Like our favorite Netflix show, we tell everybody. We are believers, thus we spread it around. The same thing is happening with the apostles. Look at verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So the officials have Peter and John leave the room, and they strategically are trying to figure out what in the world are we going to do with them? Now, what they're not asking is, after seeing this power of Jesus, what are we going to do about our lives? What they're not asking about seeing this power of the Holy Spirit, hearing these preached words of Peter, what they're going to do with the truth, how they're going to repent, they are blind to the work of God and only ask, what are we going to do with them? See, they can't have the story of Jesus and the gospel and salvation running in the streets. Look at verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they can't kill them. They can't beat them. They can't imprison them anymore. Why? Because people are going nuts over the man who was healed. These officials are blind to the power of God, but everybody else is picking up what the disciples are putting down. You see, these Jewish leaders are more afraid of men than they are of God, but that is not the case for Peter and John. They have the opposite problem. Look at verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no, no uh, more to anyone in this room. Verse 18. So they call them and change, uh, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather, to God, rather to, than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This bringing us to our last point about the effect of relationship with Jesus. 
It's not as long as the first one. But that being obedience. So we have boldness, and then there's obedience, and this loyalty, this faithfulness. Please capture the magnitude of what Peter and John just said and did. Please get this. They just said, nah, that ain't happening. To the Sanhedrin. To the Sanhedrin. To the ruling body of the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin was the final and binding interpreters of the Hebrew scripture. The very scriptures which speak of God. So when Peter and John are saying that to listen to you is in direct contradiction of what God would want for us, you can only imagine this revenant bear attack rage that they are possessing. Again, it wasn't what Jesus, they said to listen to you is in contradiction to God. They're not saying the name of Jesus, that was what God would want. See, to them, this is like a child telling Stephen King how to write a book. To them, this is, this is a toddler showing Eric Clapton how to play guitar. To the Sanhedrin, to them, this is a caveman showing Gordon Ramsay how to use a stove. <laughs> that last illustration fell apart, but you get me. <laughs> what insane, bold obedience to, to Jesus these men are showing. This was once said uh, of a great Scottish, min, uh, Scottish minister, John Knox, and I think it fits the apostles here well. It was said that he feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Now maybe some of you are thinking, (laughs) wait, is Spacey Casey encouraging us to go against the law? To riot against the government? You heard it from Casey, do it! No. Here's what I'm saying. When man's statutes clash with God's, always side with God. See, obedience to governing authorities is good and commanded in Scripture as long as they don't conflict with God's authority. The only absolute authority is God's. Why? Because God is always right and God is always, always good. Pastors, parents, professors are not. Now, most, if not all of us, will never have to face such persecution of, faith, of these horrendous, fearful situations that the apostles are in. But this type of obedience and boldness, these archetypes, still apply in small and in grand ways here on the West Side and within our life, in our Mondays and our Wednesdays. See, this type of obedience where devotion is stronger than the fear of discrimination. Hear me out. I know that that idea is a fleeting fleeting conviction, even for those who follow Jesus. There's not much greater loss of witness and misrepresentation of God than when his followers lie for their bosses. Or when followers of Jesus cut corners. Or when followers of Jesus cheat or steal or take bribes or whatever. I think you know what I'm getting at. See, and those actions and lifestyles slip in and slither in for Christians when the notion of having relationship with Jesus has become so familiar and so cliche. 
If you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're here and you are a Christian, you could be thinking, this whole talk or idea of being with Jesus is very high school summer camp. This whole talk of being with Jesus is the type of thing that's written on mugs and devotional journals, journals with pictures of mountains on them. And I agree, that stuff can be very, you know, a bit cheesy. But being with Jesus is the most real, solid thing that I've been offered or experienced or that you will ever be offered or ever have the chance to experience. So your job is not as solid as Jesus Christ. Your house is not as real as being with Jesus. Your financial security can be gone in a moment. Your tomorrow is not promised to you. But those who have a relationship with Jesus, those who have decided to follow Jesus and to acknowledge him as Lord of their lives, are standing upon a rock. Again, a perfect object lesson in which we see that is Peter and John. They know the only assurance that they have is Jesus. They're not worrying about anything else in this moment. Are they worried about their bodies or their future or their lives? None of it compares to the value of being with Jesus. Nothing compares to the value of Jesus to these apostles. So I was was thinking today, so great, Casey, how do we amp up our witness? How do we amp up this relationship? And if I began writing, I could tell us, yeah, spend more than 15 minutes with God, you know, in in your Bible every morning. Or some of you, read the Bible. I could tell us, have more of a prayer life than just, God, I need this, or God, I need that. I could encourage all of us to attend with regularity church, not just when you're volunteering. I could tell all of us to serve one another in love and humility. And those probably could and probably would, further your relationship with Jesus. But those things ebb and flow. What I want to do as a pastor and a friend is to remind you to delight and treasure Jesus. To delight and treasure being with Jesus. If I started getting all these restrictions and laws and rhythms and weird stuff about how to be with my wife more, if I want to do more and greater things for my wife, I just have to value and treasure who she is. Same goes for here. To treasure God rather than using God will allow a downpour of prayers and reading the Bible and gathering with the saints and service. So to rather be with God than using God or just knowing God means that he then becomes the object of our desire, which was what we want so badly for this church. That the soul of every single one of you is just to desire God rather than just receiving or achieving some temporal, smaller, lesser goal. I've brought it up so many times, if you guys have been with us the last few weeks as we've been going through Acts you know, three and, and four. But I brought up so many times how Peter, he's had one heck of a time dealing with his fears when he was following Jesus, when Jesus' earthly public ministry. We talked about Peter and his shortcomings and how he was following Jesus, and he dropped the ball many times. He said stupid things many times. 
And he ran and he hid and he cried many, many, many times. But hands down, one of my top three narratives, favorite narratives in all of the Bible, is John 21, where the risen Jesus meets Peter on the beach and they have breakfast burritos. It is a beautiful (laughs) image. And Jesus, in this moment, restores Peter. I mean, it's this moment where it's like you can almost just see his hand on his shoulder with a crackling fire, and you can hear the waves, where Jesus says, no more hiding. Where Jesus tells Peter, no more cowardice. No more fear, Peter. See, Jesus is the ruiner of fear. And see, I love it because Jesus doesn't address Peter's silliness. See, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus doesn't address his silliness. Jesus um, doesn't address, how much have you read the Torah? Jesus doesn't address how much he's prayed today, or if he said his prayers, or if he's serving Jesus talks to him about where his heart is at, where his love lies. What is your treasure? What is your affection on, Peter? And Jesus asks asks him over and over, and you'll remember, he asks him over and over, do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than these, Peter? And what I love, Peter in Acts 4 is displaying and answering that question And he's been answering that question every day since that breakfast on the beach. And he's been answering with his boldness and his obedience to Christ being his treasure. See, Peter loves Jesus more than his life, more than his reputation, more than himself. Christians, perhaps Christ, perhaps the Spirit of God, perhaps me as a friend, could ask that very same question tonight. Do you love Jesus more than this? Do you love Jesus more than that? More than these? Do you love him more than her? More than your own comfort or security? More than your own vocation or future? More than your own agenda? More than your spouse? More than your children? And know this. Please know this. If Christians you've forgotten and those here who don't follow Jesus, maybe you've never known this, know this. And may it give you reason to sing tonight or turn to Jesus for the very first time. See, as we delight in God, we must never forget that God delights in us. God delights in you. God's treasure is you. God himself answered the question and proved it. He proved how much he loved us by sending his only son to be with us. That's a reason to sing. So let's do that now. We're going to pray and then we're going to respond. So pray with me.